Welcome to the Astronaut Philosophy Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to talk about orbs. Now, I've referenced this a couple of times in earlier episodes. Uh, there's some experiences that I've had with light that I have... Uh, I've used this term, orbs, and this term first comes to De Vogue in, in the 90s, and we're going we're gonna to elaborate on all this. We're going to contextualize it. Um, I thought it would be maybe be helpful for people to, to understand where I'm coming from, and maybe some people are having similar experiences. That's how I'm, that's how I'm talking myself into doing this. I'm getting more and more hesitant to share my own experiences, <clears throat> that early uh, motivation that I had in uh, the first couple episodes, you know, pure pure depression can only motivate you so far. And then, and then, what are you doing it for? Well, I've convinced myself maybe it's for the greater good, and these things won't be taboo. Um, and and obviously, that reveals my bias. My bias on this podcast is. I'm not crazy, and it's a convenient assumption, and it's the one I'm sticking to for these episodes. So, uh, but I am going to reference a little bit the you know those possibilities of pathology as we go. So, when I used the term orb, what I was talking about was um, flashes of light, colored light, that uh, I began to see at a certain time in my life. Um, you could see, I could see these from beginning to end. Uh, sometimes they were very clear. Sometimes they were just very quick, and you're only left with almost like the residue of what was there. I'm going to talk about some of my specific experiences to color this a little bit, but I want to contextualize first. Um, what I'd like to do, I guess I'd like to distinguish between my experience in pathology first. I'd like to attempt to distinguish. So there's, for example, there are problems with the retina that you can have where what you experience is something like someone taking a flash picture behind you and you you have light in your peripheral vision. That's not what I'm experiencing. Uh, and I also don't have any retina issues that I'm aware of. I don't have any issues that could account for this experience, let's say that. Um, I also add that perception in general is still very mysterious to us uh, in science. We are nowhere near a coherent theory of how this works. And just to give you a quick example of how mysterious it is there's a phenomenon called blind sight uh, a new book on this study was just published by cambridge university press and what blind sight entails is there is a field where the subject is blind okay or has 
is either completely blind or has severely degraded sight. So within their field of vision, it may not be the entire field of vision. It may not, may be a piece. And still they are able to behave as if they had knowledge about objects in the blind field. How? How is it that a person who was blind, who has got some, let's say, damage to the occipital lobe or whatever the, whatever the case is, something with their eyes, how is it that they're able to report with fidelity on events in the space where they can't see? Um, this is a great read for anybody who's interested in this subject. Now, obviously, this is not proof of anything. I'm just trying to discuss or I'm trying to describe how how complex the issue of perception is um, and why it's important for us to take seriously the reports of experience. Because the problem of perception is not solved. Um Certainly, spirituality has not been reduced to, to a scientific model. So it's important to take our experiences seriously. It doesn't mean we take everything as being true. It just means we take them with a as if we were curious about them, right? Like you, like you would be curious about a child that you're raising. You take your experiences as if you cared. And, and that's partly what I want to do. Um, I would also add one last thing in terms of my context, why I don't think this is pathology, is because this, this particular business of orbs and these flashes of light, they happened in a wider context of other strange experiences. It was like I was baptized by, you know, five things at once. And some of these other experiences there were witnesses for. And um, so it isn't as if one day I, j I was just minding my own business and I started to see, you know, patches of light. That's not what happened. What happened is my attention turned to reality in a different way for the first time in my life. And when my attention turned, reality responded. That's how it felt. That's how it still feels. And I think Another difference might be when people have problems like pathology and vision, for example, they typically report it as an annoyance, right? They report it as something they want to be free of. And maybe sometimes I want to be free of, but it's in a different of, of what I've had going on. But it's, it's my wanting to be free of it is, um, is a little bit different. You know, it's not a nuisance to my, f my, my functioning. Uh, I guess in a in a pragmatic daily sense, it's more of a the way that it affects purpose and meaning and and your desire for simplicity. That's really a big one. You know, the desire for simplicity is kind of destroyed um, when you start to have spiritual experience. It's, it just because things aren't simple. You know, I like Terrence McKenna a lot on this subject. He. I don't know, I can't remember specifically what he was talking about, but he used the analogy of, you know, I was, I was walking along minding my own business and I, I stepped in some cosmic poo. <laughs> and, and the cosmos, you know, suddenly 
rearranged for him. Um, I like that example. I feel, that's kind of what it feels like. I, I, in the act of becoming interested in certain things, it something changed. I stepped stepped in some cosmic poo, and and I've been trying to unpack that ever since, or unpack the consequences. The um the first thinker who I'm gonna discuss who looks at this in any kind of substantial way is a man called Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy is a Stanford grad who was a co-founder of the Esalen Institute on the West Coast. Uh, the Esalen Institute is at least part of their mission has been to unpack the recorded history of spiritual experience and spiritual development in human beings. So cross-culturally, across uh, different religious traditions. And uh, definitely there is an emphasis on uh, personal experience. They don't exclude text, so text uh, and textual expression of the transcendent is still important, but personal experience is really big for their for their lens. Uh, so he has a his life's work more or less culminated in this book called Future of the Body, where he just talks about all kinds of. This is a wonderful read for anybody who is interested in this kind of thing. He talks about musicians, athletes. Uh, explorers, you know, climbers, sailors, uh, monks, priests, uh, just regular folks, people who have encountered the kind of fringes of experience, and um, that that seems to point to there being more than than meets the eye to this to this world. He's got this subsection in the book. It's called perceptions of extraordinary luminosities. And that's where you have, you find some reference to orbs. Um, he talks about Carl Jung, and uh, Carl Jung's you know made a, went to great lengths to document the Gnostics and Christian tradition for you know the last two thousand years. He uses phrases like atoms of light, sparks of stellar essence. Um, Henri Corbin, a uh, Corban, I believe. He's a French theologian who worked with Jung. Um, he writes about ephemeral flashes that begin with a, a spiritual turn. So when I read that phrase, ephemeral flashes, I was just sort of hair stood up on my on my arms because he he goes on to say, you know, these become more and more um, substantial, right? They're they go from flashes to maybe a ball of light that remains to maybe something even more. Uh, this section also uh, documents the experience of a physicist. His name is uh, Edward Russell, and Russell spent a lot of his life wrestling with this, seeing light, um, little balls of light on a regular basis. These were visible to him, but not other people. Uh, and this was also recorded in the... Uh, in the, the journal, the academic journal Quadrant, which is a, essentially depth psychology. Um, Corban asks the question, he says, if we ask whether these things take place in the outer world or some hidden inner world, this is really the wrong question. The inner and outer coincide I think this is a very interesting way to look at it, that the inner and outer 
coincide. And it's interesting because of how it plays well with theories of perception that are informed by evolutionary theory, right? That because nature has shaped our senses, because our senses are tuned to survival in part and in tune to, you know, we're still uncovering how development and how um, just being living organisms shapes our cognition. Because of this, it doesn't make sense to refer to objective objects out there that are separate from the perceiver. That any object of experience is necessarily including the perceiver and the perceived. There's not, not a real separation. There's a dance, a loop, you might say. So that this theologian mentions this is interesting because the next person I'm going to talk about is Alistair Hardy, who was a biologist or, yeah, he was a biologist at uh, Oxford University. And he started a, he had a religious experience in his youth. And in addition to working in biology, he, um, he started to record religious experiences, uh, on the side. So he was employed by the university but he also starts this archive, the Archive of Religious Experience, and it now has a journal, the Journal of Religious Experience. I think he started this in the 60s. Um, and Hardy was ahead of his time in terms of his views of evolution because in his day it was strict genetic determinism. And the perceiver or the actor, the organism's behavior, its attention, that was not included to be a part of how organisms evolve across time. It's just genes, random mutation, and then, you know, whether you live or die, nature selects, and then that's all there is. That is no longer the consensus. Um, and Hardy was ahead of the game. Now, I'm going to do a, a completely, you know, independent uh, podcast on or episode on evolution and this weird why so many thinkers have one hand in evolutionary theory and another hand in, in the transcendent. What is the attraction there? What's going on? It's really fascinating. You know, William James is, is another big one, maybe the first big one. Um, but to get back to orbs and, you know, what I'm here to talk about, um, Hardy starts this uh, religious experience research archive and... Um, it has over 6,000 experiences recorded. Of those, there are some 400 that discuss light, the experience of light. And of those, there's a smaller subset that we might can relate to what we're talking about with orbs. Um, the journal has published an article specifically on orbs or what they call orb-like manifestations. So I'm just going to read this quick little paragraph. It says, It may suddenly appear, stay along for a while, and disappear. To the perceiver, the orb is experienced in the sense of something present. This presence is recognized as resembling being in the same room with another person. And it may return repeatedly, or just once or twice over a lifetime, with no exception to the effect of its profoundness to the experiencer. 
In other words, that people are profoundly changed. And it doesn't matter if they have this regularly through life like I have or just once or twice. It should be pointed out that orbs have been reported frequently in other conscious and non-conscious states such as dreams, near-death experience, out-of-body experience, mystical experience, clairvoyantly as part of a field, UFO encounters, and paranormal experiences. These all, all these examples fall within anomalous experience as, quote, believed to deviate from ordinary experience or from the usually accepted explanation of reality according to Western mainstream science, unquote. So this, uh, this subject has a little bit of a history. Um, even though I said the term comes to vogue in the 90s, it, uh, it comes to vogue uh, because of a... We might divide this experience into two parts. There's the part I'm talking about where people see with their eyes, they perceive orbs. And then there's something else where people photograph orbs. And this has become a thing where people will intend, like actively go out and try to take pictures where they get these, these, whatever this is, uh, on either a digital or a analog film. Um, there's a man named Klaus Heinemann. Uh, he's got a PhD in physics. He was a former contractor with NASA um, and professor at Stanford. And, and he's written a book specifically about the photographic evidence. Um, this is all interesting, um, but this is not what I want to focus on just because it's it relies on technology. So just for me, it's not as interesting as the personal experience. Um, and also, uh, Heinemann's got this really elaborate metaphysics that I, I don't, uh, I'm not a fan of that accompanies his, his book. Uh, but I mean, it's still worth looking at. If you're interested in this, it's still worth looking at. So I guess this is a good spot to talk about my own experiences. Um, as I mentioned before, when I started to have these, I had already made this this turn so to speak this inward turn and not just an inward turn but outwardly outwardly as well I was looking at reality as something that was participatory I had had that revelation whether or not you agree with it or not for me it was a revelation um so the first experience I was sitting on the couch uh watching the daily show and a guy who I knew I uh, had come up and was sitting beside me, and um, he had come to talk to me about something. He wanted to get off his chest, and uh, as he did that, um, I saw a brilliant flash of blue light uh, right at his chest, and I immediately stood up and asked him you know, to shake out his shirt. To, because you, in every experience I've had for the, when it occurred for the first time, my mind does the same thing each time and it goes to a conventional explanation. So when I saw that green, you know, turquoise ball of fire in the sky that I talked about, you know, the first thing 
I thought was, well, that's got to be a plane crash <laughs> because, you know, the turquoise plane crashes that, you know, stop in the sky and, <laughs> and drop and disappear. Those happen all the time. Um, and this was like that. So I, you know, I asked the man to, to shake out his shirt. Um, he had on a necklace. It was just a dull colored brass uh, necklace that it wasn't even in the exact space where I saw the flash of light. And, uh, you know, there was nothing that, that could account for it. And it would just, you know, it struck me to the point where I ended up having to leave and go have a beer uh, because it was just, it was just one thing after another at this point uh, for me. And maybe one day I'll really go into detail and and explain everything that happened in the order that it happened. Um, next example I'll use is a slightly different uh, it's an elaboration. So that was a, well, I'll use, I'll use one more example of an orb. Uh, this was, uh, I was in the army. Um, I was in training and uh, this was at the intelligence school. And um, I was taking notes about something. Actually, I'd stopped taking notes. I had two books. I had a book of notes and I had a book of like where I could just write my own thoughts about whatever, because these are extremely long sessions that you're in these classes for. And it's just, you know, you don't have, you don't have a phone, certainly, you know, cause you, it's classified stuff and you don't have a, you don't have internet. So you're just kind of locked in a safe basically for hours and hours. So sometimes I would write and, um, and I was writing at one point and emerging from the air, from thin air, right beside my pencil as I'm, you know, right at spelling out a word comes this uh, orange, orangish, amber uh, colored light. And I see it all the way through, you know, from the, from it being a speck to a little spark to, you know, getting as big as the eraser head probably in diameter. So not huge, but I mean, when you're right there, your face is right there and you're writing, it's big enough. And, um, and then collapsing again, disappeared. And I remember I said something like, like, whoa, you know, just emoted. And, um, I couldn't help it because it was just really brilliant and just, they're, most of them had been occurring as flashes, you know, in this one I saw all the way through and it was just beautiful and crazy. And the instructor stopped and like shot me a look, you know, I had to pretend like I was just super, super into that lecture. <laughs> and, um, so that's one form of this, but it evolved, um, to get a little bit weirder with it. Uh, and just to be transparent and just, I'm just going to keep this vulnerability going and you know, maybe I look crazy, but, um, so there was a, a period when I was in Afghanistan where I had briefly been put in charge of, of, uh, basically giving people access to simplify this for folks, giving people access to the classified information or figuring out if they were eligible for access to all the things that we did in that special little room. The guy who had been doing that, uh, whose job it was, he was a contractor, and he had to leave the country for a couple of weeks, and I got tapped to do it because I had gone to DIA for training. And um, and it was a weird experience. You know, you're, you're, it was a huge AO. 
um, area of operations that I was, you know, in charge of more or less, even though I couldn't, I wasn't extremely uh, prepared for that moment. Um, and it's in that context that um, a one-star general, and I think it was a colonel, came in to get read on to something. And it was just one of these absurd moments, kind of like... Uh, uh, that you read in books, I guess, uh, where absurdities that happen in institutions and and uh, catch twenty two, I think, is the what I was trying to think of, um, where the, the regulation and the the needs of reality clash. And anyway, this general is trying to. He's they're both national guard. He doesn't quite know what he's doing in terms of like coming to get his access, the access that he needs. He can't describe to me the program that he needs access to because it's classified. And I, this is actually a program that I don't happen to know exists. <laughs> and so we engage in this like 15 minute back and forth where neither one of us can say exactly what the other is talking about. And, um, and as I'm sitting there in that, uh, you know, ridiculous, exchange um these uh, yellowish amber colored lights uh appear sort of all all around him he obviously can't see this and as they appear it's like i instinctively know that he can't see this and i just kind of watch it and he's talking and i'm no longer listening i'm just looking because I can look at it directly. And and then uh, they sort of rotate, you know, they're moving. And eventually they they fade out and then I I'm I'm no longer stressed at the end of this. I'm kind of detached. And that's the effect that this had on me throughout my military experience. It's like I never got to commit fully to that experience which is part of my resentment about it, I guess, because I was always getting pulled back to this kind of spiritual space, and that's where it put me in, and I couldn't help that that's where it put me. Um, that situation resolved itself, um, and, uh, you know, I went on living life, but, you know, I had this sort of secret commitment throughout that time in Afghanistan where when I had free time, I was, you know, trying to read about the nature of spirituality and 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 uh, the nature of reality because it was like I was straddling two worlds at the same time. That's what it felt like. So I've I've sort of alluded to the fact that I think these were only something for my awareness. That's a strange concept for people, I know. Um, but this idea of there being different kinds of awareness is very old. It's an ancient idea. Again, I, I just mentioned a Cambridge book uh, earlier, but there's another one from Cambridge University Press called um, The Spiritual Senses. Uh, and just talking about the idea of there being a sense for the divine. And this is just documents Christian history. Um, but there are other thinkers of what, as well who have put some time into this. Northrop Fry, I think, had three different 
kinds of attention. Fry is famous for uh, a commentary or an interpret symbolic interpretation of the Bible. I think he's written a couple uh, on that on that subject. Um, more recently, uh, Ian McGilchrist, psychiatrist, has tried to divide our forms of attending between the left and right hemispheres, where the right hemisphere, he says, is associated with things like looking at whole, looking at the world through holes instead holistically, right? Instead of a reductive by parts way that the, the left hemisphere uses. Um, he also associates the right hemisphere with uh, um, spiritual experience or with reading poetry, reading spiritual uh, texts, that there's just a different kind of attending. And when that kind of attending is, when it's happening, the world, there's literally another world that comes into being. Um, you know, what kind of attention am I using here with this podcast? I don't know. Maybe the combination. These are these are just simplifications, right? The, to an attempt to divide attention, but that there that there is some ambiguity in spiritual experience. This is an, an old idea. In the modern sense, one that you'll come across in the literature is uh, is from a guy named Maurice Buke. He wrote a book called Cosmic Consciousness, and he wrote this in like, I think it was like 1902. So this is way early in the game, way ahead of what we might call the the New Age movement now. He was a Canadian psychiatrist who had a a mystical experience. Um, And, well, I'll I'll just read so we can get into the ambiguity that I'm talking about. Um, this is in the foreword to his book. It says, All at once, without warning of any kind, he found himself wrapped around, as it were, by a flame-colored cloud. For an instant, he thought of fire, some sudden conflagration in the great city. The next instant, he knew that the light was within himself. So, Again, the inner and outer, we get back to Henri Corbin, who, who also noted that this, this is a dance between the inner and the outer, and, and, and that it's not clear, I guess, to, when we make that division. We crave uh, the outer certainty, let's say. Um, it's very convenient to have other people see what you see so that you can have agreement so that you can be sure. I think that's really what's at the heart of this being so strange and why it is, why we are so reluctant to take it seriously. We want that agreement. We want that certainty. And also, I think our nervous systems are are just geared towards not just middle-sized objects in space and time, but towards object constancy. That is so important for us. And the lack of object constancy is makes it very difficult for us to grapple with. And that's true whether we're mapping things that aren't constantly there um, in the physical w- world, like in the microcosm of where particles and waves or whatever is, <laughs> however we're modeling that down there. But it's also true in the most fundamental sense, like in terms of development for infants, right? The object constancy of the mother, for example, 
or, or parents is, is so important that if it's not there, the child will not develop reason. It's not just that, oh, well, they won't be properly socialized. That if there's not a social figure there to do that dance, that this has been shown uh, through certain orphanages in the Eastern Europe where the children didn't have human contact. They, they are stunted intellectually for life. So our development depends on this kind of constancy. We don't know what to do. It, the the uncertainty puts us in a weird place. I mean, we we can even you can even use the analogy of a a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You know, it's probably not going to be a great experience for you as a partner, a love interest, if you have someone who cannot deal without the object constancy, right? Like they have to be with you. They have to be texting you. They have to be calling you. They need that constant presence there. Why? Because in the absence of it is uncertainty. They disappear. They fall apart. Um, I think I find myself thinking of these examples when I think of these anomalous or religious experiences because they're not constant and they're not reproducible and they're not even shared half the time. And so it puts us in this bizarre place of uncertainty, a place that we are very uncomfortable being, uh, being in. You know, we want that. We want permanence. We want security. And, um, and it's not to be had in that way here. And I, I guess that's also the part of the appeal of surrender for the Christian tradition or, um, we're letting go of the, you know, the, the temporary nature of the world and the Eastern tradition, you know, there's, there's a letting go, a surrendering that's, that's constantly pointed to in order for us to, to better engage the world and to better engage our own health and to be able to love people and love ourselves. And, um, and that's how I process these experiences. I try not to, I try not to worry about the certainty so much. I just try to, I try to share at least I'm trying to share now. I think that's going to cover it for today. I hope to go into some of these subjects in greater depth and more detail in future episodes. Uh, as I said, I'm already going to do one on evolution and on why there's this interesting uh, entanglement between evolutionary theory, uh, scientists, and the transcendent. Um, which is counterintuitive for those of us who are taught that there is this animosity and they can never meet, you know, evolutionary theory and, and the divine. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're still with me, if you've hung with me through going the distance with me, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you and we'll continue the journey. No one knows me like the piano in my mother's home You will show me I had something Some people call it so And you drop top the sky Oh, you Three years old No one knows me Like the piano
Oh, my God. 